you're seeing this um, right right view the right view uh, is the result of of right mindfulness and, and right concentration results in, in right view seeing the way things are and also having the view of where do we need to focus our lives on where do we need to focus our our Dharma practice on now also I'm trying to present uh, a perspective on Dhamma that makes it very fluid um, adaptable because you're translating the amazing complexities of form in the physical, sensory, intellectual, emotional world into into simple characteristics to make them manageable like four elements the five aggregates the three characteristics, all these little lists they have in Buddhist books so you, you're always translating the particular the momentary into these terms not denying their momentary nature or their individual nature but putting them within this, these focuses so that we can see and we can, we can relate to them in this way if we're always just relating to everything in its individual peculiarities then we find it's very difficult to maintain a steady response because there's so many different forms like there's happy, unhappy, there's necessary and unnecessary there's physical form, desires, aversions, there's social responsibilities the whole of what we can conceive or perceive of is something to respond to with Dhamma now that's that's the practice gulp <laughs> it's a it's a big chunk to chew off but it's uh you got you got until the day you drop to do it in the Eightfold Path, right, right understanding, right intention, right speech right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration now you can see working on these as, as meditations so when we speak, that's the speaking that which is dumb and not necessarily quoting the words of the Buddha but speaking that which is true in accordance with truth which is an expression of, of, of our practice say of that which is tolerant, kind, truthful, undemanding a treasure, something that is gentle and lovely something that people want to hear rather than just a you numbskull, what do you do that again for? <laughs> or, or the varying kinds of um, dumping that we can do on each other So this Dharma practice involves a responsibility for, for all of it but not to make a heavy burden out of it but to see, yes, with this there's, a, there's an opportunity to practice that which will be for my welfare and for the welfare of others because we don't get these, these life systems right they're always 
feeling of sadness or lack of regret or difficulties with oneself. It doesn't feel very good if we if we know that some, somewhere along the line, either through body, speech or mind, we're manifesting that which isn't right. We all know what that is, really. We know what's right. You don't have to have a series of, of, of laws that tell you what's right. You know when you're right and when you're not right. The structures in Dharma practice are there not as as commandments or as or as statements about actu- uh, reality, but as as focal points for us to observe. So that you've got a, kind of a steady hand on on life. Not that you're going to crush it or grasp it, but you can. You, your hand is steady enough to hold your life and feel it out. The holding on, the letting go, where where self arises, where the, the selfishness or the self view, looking for things to be, expecting things to last that can't do that, expecting things to be fulfilling that can't do that, expecting to own things or have things that we can't. All this causing us suffering as long as we hold on to it and liberation when we understand it as it is today say I've been recommending using this focal point of of who am I or what the self you know, being to meditate on what I am where I'm, where I'm really at from moment to moment what I think I am or what my motivations are just keeping the attention clear upon, upon that the, and then seeing through that the, the way that this, this self-view is always a one-eyed business you never quite get things in perspective as long as you take everything personally When we can see this in obvious, obvious uh, situations, say when we live in in a in a group, like here, this this group here, and you know, is as it is, isn't it? Then there's the the routines and so forth, and yet the person personal views are always that which moves out of that, out of a out of a like just going to the group, being with the group. It's always some personal. Thing, some self-view of what I need or what I want or what I feel like that moves us out so that we can use a, a group situation like this to see who am I and then is this something to to hold to 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 that one wants to really be is it skillful is it purposeful or is it not so that we use group situations such as this one to examine our intentions, our motivations, our impulses. Though so we can, we we're looking at what we are in this way. Now, communities are are very helpful for this because you never t- find two people in a community 
who see things the same way. So it always gives everybody an opportunity to look at where they're at. Uh, so this little community set up doesn't suit anybody, it doesn't, doesn't suit me. I shouldn't imagine it suits the staff, doesn't suit you. So we're all united in this. <laughs> we are completely in accord on this unsuitability. <laughs> It'd be nice if this was longer, that was shorter, there was more of this and less than that, wouldn't it? Let's face it. But what those what those quali- what those things are, then we all got different perhaps different views on something like more silence, more talking, more food, less food, more sleep, less sleep, more sitting, more walking, more find out more space, go on your own, a bit of reading now and then, maybe do some jogging, have some yoga, tai chi, massage therapy, or maybe just everybody be on their own, or everybody be together, or oh. So when we, we see this, how can we get on in the community? We all have to say, well, well, we'll do this. And because, say, it's a structure that's okay in some ways. It's okay for dumber purposes in that it's, it's moral and everybody has to give up within it. Everybody has to, is asked for something from it. And that's what you look for. In, in your life, something that's that's not asking you to do anything that you really would regret or feel guilty about or harmful, but yet asks something from you. Says, so "Give give give me something. Give me some patience. Okay. Give me some. Something uh, you have to be patient with, equanimous with." So actually, when we, we recognize this, this is uh, where we, we are best, actually, we're best suited at giving, then this is a joy in our lives. We Once we recognize that this situation in here is essentially a giving one, not a, not a getting one, then we can see, okay, this is useful. Because it's asking something all the time that's not too much, but it's certainly a kind of a request to say to to fit in, to do this, to not do that, just fitting in with routine. And when you cultivate this way, you find that it makes it very very helpful for you to to contemplate your individuality within a, the larger community, say your personal realm, your friends, family, whatever people you, you associate with uh, are something you feel communion with. And on one level we, we all can recognize a certain communality as just as human beings, brothers and sisters in, in human nature. We really understand our own minds. You know why the world's the way it is. You can't really feel so outraged you know that that what what self view can do. You begin to get some glimmerings of what that what that can do. How that can be a a monster that gets totally out of control with me mine. So there's beneath all the the, the feelings of the weirdness and the strangeness and the pe- peculiarity 
of the multiform world as, a, as an understanding of why it's the way it is. What is the quality behind it? You say that the world is, is, arises with desire. Good desires, lovely desires, bad desires, horrible desires. We are motivated through desire of some kind. We want to be better, we want to be happy, we want to be enlightened, we want to make other people well, we want, we want, we want. And if that wanting is cloaked with ignorance, then it can become, even a nice desire, can become very dangerous. Through wanting people to be better, we can hurt them horribly. Through wanting the society to be well, we can commit all kinds of atrocities on individuals to get rid of the bad guys. So the desire you recognize is a reality and yet it's always projecting out theory, fantasy. You see an ordinary old common common or garden desire. You know, you know, when you it's time to eat something, then the 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 feeling that arises with that of what it should be. And it's never exactly the way you can't imagine what it is, can you? You know, even somebody told you in exact detail what you're going to eat today, you can't imagine it. You can't really, that, that idea, that desire is never the thing in itself. And round, um, but then it's the way it is. You can't expect not to have desire. But to, that, that projecting of the image can be let go of. We can recognize there's wanting and the movement inclination towards, but we're not taking it any further than that. I mean, then how is it? It's always, it's okay. It's never what we imagine, but it's, it's okay. So much of this life is really either okay or pretty good or bearable. We can get by. But the desire in our mind says, it's, it's, I can't stand it, it's horrible, it shouldn't be this way. I really want one of those, and, 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 all, and that. I found um, myself just living on alms food over these years been very helpful for not to, not that you're trying to annihilate desire over food or anything like that, though first of all you get into that kind of syndrome, but then that kind of, that wears down. But just accepting what's given and as it is, you can see how the desire, desire works. You can see there's always, like when you've got no way of actually getting your own, you just got to take what people give you. There's always a feeling of, oh, not so much of that, or, oh, that's too much of that, or, oh, a little bit more of that would be nice. That kind of inclination. 
in the mind, that, that sort of slight movement, and you just hold your mind upon that, just relax. You know, you don't, you're not denying that or feeling ashamed of that. You recognize that's the human, that's the body speaking through the mind, isn't it? That's the body speaking. And it's coming through, through the mind, and the mind is making this sound out of it, this thought out of it. And you can watch how it works. Because I notice they have, here they have this, these three, these, at the end of the line, they have these three dressings. You know? Have you seen that? Now, of course, you see, one doesn't, you know, the monks just walk along and hold your bowl out. But I've noticed that it's like, it's like find the lady, that no matter which one I get, I always think one of the others would have been better. <laughs> I've watched it, I've experimented with that, just to see what happens. It's the way it is, isn't it? The way desire works is that what you haven't got but you could have <laughs> is always better than what you have got. The forbidden fruit, the, the not quite, the, the tempting, the possibility is where there's the room to imagine that would have been really wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and this is just the way it is. Now, that's just an ov- obvious old common or garden desire. Now, when we project that around, around, around our lives onto, our, onto ourselves, how did, you, how did you get on with yourself today? How much is left there to say about yourself? Have you got tired of that yet? <laughs> it's good for you, isn't it, to actually be in, in situations where finally you have to just be with yourself listen to yourself and find there's nobody else really is going to drag you out of it to finally know what that is and know that that self is not self and then this response of listening to the mind being with the mind being peaceful with it the way it is you know the, the silly voices the funny moods the inspired moments the pride or the or the shame or the craving or whatever it is equanimous the way it is rising and passing away being with oneself but you're not following that you're not just uh, giving into it nor nor being heavy-handed on it one doesn't need to be when it's when you can cultivate dhamma with that this is the beauty of it Dharma is the, is the only place that really allows you freedom. And in that freedom, what comes up when we're free from holding? Now many people think that non-attachment means that, you know, if you're free from it, then you just ignore everything. Mm. So, you, or your mind just goes completely quiet, there's no attachments, you're not attached, so you're just in this kind of voided out state. Void, I'm in the void. So, I'm not attached. Far out. <laughs> Stumbling around, you know, not attached to anything, just losing things, forgetting things, dropping things all over the place. Forgetting to wash, shave, not attached to those things anymore. Just the body. <laughs> 
that's not non attachment, this is called laziness. <laughs> non attachment is, is it that, that to, to really, we say non attachment is, is anatta, not self. And what? You're not, you're not holding on to any kind of mood, however, as an ideology, as, as being lazy or not bothering, just holding on to that becomes a self-view, doesn't it? You adopt that as your kind of personal attitude. Now, I'm going to be one of those don't-care people or non-conformist. I'm not attached like that. As an ideology, as some kind of personal statement of what we are. But the practice of non-attachment means that there's a total attention and a, and a vital response. And response is always that which is, results in letting go, which allows this space, this freedom to move, to, to respond to our, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our bodies, and what happens to us. This is not attachment. A freedom to respond. And when we're free, we respond beautifully. It's not that there's no more response anymore, but that response is, is, it's free, it's spontaneous, it's not contrived, it's not forced, it's not uh, an ideology. It's the natural response. When you see suffering and you're free from, from despair, anxiety or worry, the response towards that is, must be of love and compassion. Because you have to in order to feel okay or to justify yourself or you feel morally obliged to, but that's the way it is, isn't it? It's just like you can't train yourself to, to love anything. But when there's the freedom and the possibility, it's quite natural. It's a natural state for a human being. When they're unconstrained by self-view, is one of kindness and compassion. This is why we call Dhamma is truth. Peace and truth. It's not a belief, it's the truth of the way that we are naturally where we're no longer deluded, confused. Now, considering who are we or what are we, we also, our, our life, our mind, our personal experiences are very much a result of what's happening to us. It's not a it's not a uh, a self-contained unit, is it? Really, you may think there's me. I'm walking around with all these problems in me and these thoughts and nuts. But those are all conditioned. They're all created by what what's happened to you. The memories you have occur because there was there was a past. There was an, there were events. The people that cluster through your mind are people you've seen or thought about. And the, the habits that you have get conditioned into you. The way that you speak, the way that you think, is conditioned by your society, your parents, by the sensory predicament itself, by the current mode of, of ideology or theory, or and, and on and on and on and on and on. You can't find any of it that is, that is intrinsically yours. 
and say this is karma. It's not self. It's karma. It's caused the caused. And when we understand it's the cause rather than the essential, then we also see that if the causes are no longer there, then we don't have to experience that. So the laws of karma are not about a kind of fatalism or determinism, saying, I've been born like this, I'm stuck like this. You know, that's me. Nothing I can do about it. But laws of karma say that things are caused, therefore if the causes are no longer engaged in, the results end. That's the way that Buddha used the laws of karma. So whatever we intend in our life, that's where we create karma. Whatever we consciously intend to do, or even unconsciously intend to do, through, through being confused, but there is, there is self-volition, there's motivation into that. That's what we remember, that's what is the result in our life. The way that you are now is a result of what you've consciously done or, or been part of. And we're also, we are receptive, we are very receptive to the world around us. So all that. Sometimes you feel dull just because it's a sticky hot day, not because there's something wrong with you. Or you feel agitated and restless because um, the weather's this way, or something you ate, or... So that you can't take any of it personally. It's all to be worked with responded to, but none of it to be held as, as a person, as a self. So we have to learn to listen to ourselves closely, rather than assume that we should feel this or should feel that. And this is part of the, one of the problems of our life, isn't it? In the world, and what we're going to do, and who we are, the idea, sometimes very high-minded ideas of what we should be and how we, what we should say and we should always be nice and sweet and kind and we should never feel aversion or doubt and we should always be confident and competent and never incompetent, never dull or foolish, never, never made a fool of. The most uh, horrible thing, to be made a fool of, to be considered a bore, oh no. You know, the one who doesn't get invited anywhere. Shrink. And then so that you know, in our life, we think, please, whatever, don't let me be boring. Don't let me be left out. Then, you know, how long can you keep being fascinating, interesting, as some kind of personal thing? So people find themselves doing themselves all kinds of, of injustices out of this notion, self-view, of what they, they have to be for themselves, and be what they think other people think they should be. So this, this is a very complicating situation, isn't it? Because we, as human beings, we really, we really uh, attract each other. Notice how much in a day your mind is full of people. Here, when there's silence and 
you mostly don't know each other very well or at all, you might have seen each other now and then, but it's a silent situation. You're not really getting into each other's personality. Still, pers- you can be noticing people, your mind sticking on people. That, per- that woman, that woman who was in front of me in the meal time, that man who, who ate his food very slowly, who didn't clean up properly, That lady with the funny, funny pants on. That man who looked really weird. And, and on, 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 sticking in, in the mind. And this is in a quiet situation, as you know what it's like when you leave here. The world is just, you can hardly see the space anymore. It's so full of people. But we're creating those in our mind. Out of self-view external self isn't it? She's like that, he's like this, I'm like this. And what they should be like, what I should be like. Now living in in, in this in community, living with other people is a Dharma practice and I think that uh, there's an awareness of that. But this is not to be done on just ideological grounds of what we sh- of of self view of what we should be like as people. If it does, it's endless. You're getting endless kinds of uh, confrontations and therapies, and oh, you should be like, and you should be more caring, and you should be more firm, and you should be this, and you know all that. Expecting people to be ideals rather than be allowing them to be human beings and yet with no structure at all things just get very chaotic and in Dharma you use a structure which is say we all incline towards certain things that personally we feel are good as a, an aspiration towards that which is kind as, an, as a practice rather than an idea being kind being patient, giving to each other, recognizing what it's like to be human and the difficulties of that, the way life is, that doesn't always allow us to to live up to our ideas. So we, we take all that into account when you live in terms of Dhamma, as a community, as a group. I found that Certainly, living with uh, in in monastery has been very helpful for that because there are all kinds of of rules and things that we should be, but yet the understanding of the way things are is that there's always this recognition that you know people are intending that they're inclining that way they're trying but they don't they don't always make it so we always forgive start again listen recognize and allow people the space to grow towards what they really want to be anyway. We, I think we'd all like to be, in our heart of hearts, we'd like to be good and wise and worthy of respect and worthy of love. And we'd like to be more loving and kind ourselves. It's a very fundamental thing. In, in, in 
when we understand that and we, we reflect upon that personally as an aspiration then we, we have the opportunity to practice that to recognize that in ourselves and in those we want to be with if people don't want to do that then don't be with them and the people you can't uh, who don't want to be like that you just have to use them as meditation objects it's all a meditation object but the the angry or the hostile or the impatient you just watch what's happening in your mind the fear the sadness the despair the, the frustration and you practice with that now, I, I certainly noticed how just being able to practice with with uh, people's unwillingness or negativity actually helps them if I'm not saying you should be this way you shouldn't be like that don't be so unpleasant that's really wrong of you uh, in a kind of in a hurt if I'm frightened and angry and defensive then that tends to create more in other people but if I'm actually people are being unpleasant and I'm not believing in it then I notice that that really helps to cool things down people can actually even in monasteries people can get pretty uptight at times and fly off the handle lose lose their cool and then if you if you if you create a you know a thou shalt not feeling about it, it it doesn't help anybody but if you just let go in your own mind of that then that's rather like somebody swinging a punch at you but you're not there and they, they're left with this this punch and they see what it is and that really helps people actually and one year I had to spend three months with somebody who, who, who hated me and we were just two of us it was interesting because nothing I could do, I couldn't do anything that he wouldn't interpret as as me being uh, negative or, or trying to do him down. If I was cheerful, he was being patronizing. If I was quiet, he was being aloof and remote. If I was, well, now we've got to talk this over, then I was being heavy handed. So, for a while, he just, okay, this is one of those situations, a total loser all the way. And then you, you just, well, I just kind of, in my mind, I just surrendered to that. It's just a situation where you be, can be blamed and got at constantly. And then just, just I just put aside the worry about it. <laughs> you know, so you're going to get shot. Why worry about it? And just it gave me freedom actually, because then I could just do what I I thought was right and not not even concern myself with the reactions that I'd be getting because those were, those would happen anyway. So when you, this is a, uh, like this place of self-view, working with your own mind, is not just narcissistic, it's also that which is therapeutic for others. I found this more helpful than me saying to somebody else, you, know, you should be more positive, you shouldn't be so negative. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, even if you're right, 
even if you're right, that's really annoying. Is there anybody who's right telling you what's wrong with you and they're right? Does it make you feel good? Let me tell you what's wrong with you. In this and that, you know they're right. Smarty Alec. And you just feel, you don't feel any inclination to actually rise up to anything. You just feel you've been put down and, and you feel humiliated. You tend to think, well, I'm wrong and I don't care anymore. <laughs> That's the way human nature is. But if we're actually suggested, you know, that there's a place for us to grow, when we're actually allowed to reflect and see our mistakes or weaknesses in a, in a light that's not critical or negative, then we think, I don't want to be like, I don't want to be like that. So I don't do it, do I? This is you know, you using non-anatta for externally, for for others also. You recognise the anger in somebody else's anatta, and each anatta dukkha. The fear in somebody else is that way, and you don't buy into it. You don't believe it. You don't deny it, but you don't believe it. You just that's the way that is now, isn't it? We've all been angry. We've all been frightened. We've all been negative. So working on these in yourself is one way in which you cultivate this recognition of, oh, there's anger again. Well, there it is now. It's like that, isn't it? That is really very helpful for people. Then you find people actually want to learn to be with each other in order to get past themselves. And this is what really helps us live as wise, responsible, and responsive human beings. And we all have to live in community, maybe just one or two, you know, other people, or the people at the office, or the people in the job, or the people at school. Or... But this consciousness of how we can cultivate in our minds a way that will be for their welfare and for our own is very immediate in Dhamma. Very immediate. I found if I th- if I think about people, it can sound like the right idea. If I think, let me think, Joe. Now Joe's got a lot of problems. I know I've known Joe for years. He's got a lot of problems, and I've really got to find a way to sort Joe out. Then what I'm doing in my mind is I'm creating Joe as actually being those problems. I tend to come and say, Joe, you've got problems, and I'm approaching him with this view. But if I start to understand that there isn't any Joe, really, there aren't any problems either, there's just conditions changing, then I don't, I can relate to that Dhamma in a person as it is. And I can see the space behind their, their attachments and their fears. And I can relate to that, so they don't have to be that anymore. As long as we confirm each other's identities in this way, we're not really helping. I found that that the kindest thing I can do with people is not to think about them. The most most helpful, responsible thing to do is to to not think about them. I always find that when I'm with people, it's always 
it's always pleasant somehow. Or alive, it's always a dumber in it. When I think about them, there's always something slightly off. Feeling like, even if, even if I think they're really wonderful, I think, I wish he was here now. So wonderful. Then when he turns up, does something that, that's not so wonderful, doesn't fit into my image of him. He let me down. Because in the actuality, we none of us can really be satisfying objects for each other. They're always creating little envies or jealousies or nervousness, fear, anxieties, little worries about, does she really like me? Do you, are you really being honest with me? These kind of movements. So we use uh, Dhamma teaching for this. Now people, like in this retreat and in meditation practice and in, in turning to Dhamma, we, we do need structures. Seeing that, that uh, we spend days just living within this form, living within the precept form, Living, using the meditation techniques is not an end in itself, but without it, it would be very difficult to, to really hold the balance of attention and not get lost into something or another. And, and for our life with other people, we do need, we do need structures. We do need structures that are capable of supporting communities, relationship structures things that we can all get to. In, in, in Dhamma, the structures of Dhamma, conventions of Dhamma, which is that of kindness and respect for each other, of a helping offering. Now, personally, I, I came into Dhamma practice, I, I didn't want to be bothered with anybody. I read this, you know, wanted to sort myself out, get my stuff together, then get out and do what I wanted to do. I didn't want to people around me. You know, this is the kind of the myth of the individual, isn't it? And certainly in, in, uh, in Britain, I expect very much the same in your society, very similar Western societies. The individual is the important thing. The individual's got to be free, got to do what he wants to do, what she wants to do, fulfill themselves individually, not be bothered with, with other uh, responsibilities or tied down. That's the myth, you know, the idea of the individual freedom, the loner. And in, in, in certainly in Buddhist circles, practice on your own is it? the real practice. It's don't need anybody, don't need a teacher, don't need the Buddha even, just do it all on my own. There's a real 
diligent practitioner. They don't believe in anything. They don't believe in any kind of formal practice. I just practice with my own wisdom. <laughs> my own efforts and energies. Don't need teachers, don't need monks, don't need groups, don't need retreat centers, just hermit life. I think that's a real, really good, diligent meditator. That's what I, I felt like when I started practicing. Okay, just, just shove right in there, just get down to it, sit and no count and sit. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Don't get in my way. <laughs> the, the individual, highly developed individual consciousness. You know, look at the, the heroes in our, in our society, movie heroes. It was the, the big man, isn't it? Or the, the wonderful woman, the attractive woman, not the, the kind of number 23 in the line. There's always the John Waynes and the Supermans and the Rambos of the world. The, the, you know, the, the one who really stands out is the hero, not the one who's just part of a group. Exaggerated, but very, very attractive for us. Man's got to do what a man's got to do. <laughs> Craggy jawed. As the, uh, the you know the, the the hero, even if he's nasty, at least he's a loner. But, you know, these kind of nasty anti-heroes are are doing what the man's got to do, according to his own his own wisdom. <laughs> His own understanding, his own instincts, which is generally pretty carnal. Because <laughs> once you identify with these kind of masculine myths, they're just taking this foolish, brutal insensitivity. And even when I was a child, it was it was much more that those were all the heroes you looked up to. You got conditioned into it from the time you could read and respond to media. Always the individual was the, the hero, the, the, the warrior, the statesman, the one who made it. Not, not the group. There's only one leader, there's only one winner, there's only one person who needs to be top of the class. Competitive sports. Social competition, who can get the most girls, or who can, you know, ride a bike fastest, or who can grow a beard quickest, soonest. Who's taller? It's kind of the the myth, the ego thing. Now, coming from that, I mean, you can you substitute the object, but, but very much those kind of ideas have their effect. Those feelings have their effect. Is that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get enlightened and, and and so forth. So we don't we don't have a very rounded out view. People don't often respond in a total way. The idea that some kind of transmuted self will achieve something, somehow. But our real achievement is in, in that boundary, that edge being dissolved. This is the real achievement. When we understand anatta internally and externally, there isn't any... What is the boundary between us? There's a physical form, but most of the time we're not even within this physical form. We're all responding, relating, listening, talking, feeling, 
perceiving each other. And we have to recognize that and, and tune to that. Whether we create harmful perceptions for each other, whether we, whether we're creating jealousies for each other, or whether we're making other people envious, fear us, worship us, or whether we're encouraging a sense of, of personal modesty, deference, respect for others. These are standards that are, are almost laughable to in, in modern society. You know, respect. Modesty. Because <laughs> it's the it's the complete opposite of the of the individual, isn't it? Don't respect anybody. I'm as good as you, I'm fat, I'm probably better. And as as regards modesty, you know, if you've got something then show it, reveal it, talk about it, praise it. Let everybody know about it. Don't hide your light under a bushel. But in Dhamma practice, we turn the other way. How can, you know, if I'm creating those images in my own mind, how is that helpful for anybody else? Just to feel lesser or fascinated with me? So they or feeling that they're, let, they're, they're not as good as I am, or they're better than I am, or they've got to prove themselves or fight or really irresponsible, isn't it? So, the way that, like, for example, the, the monastic form, you just, you have this a system whereby you just have a, a sense of respect and deference to each other just in terms of who's been ordained longest, not who's wisest or most lovable or most worthy of it even, but just who's, who's eldest. And this is very simple, and it's completely, it's fair in its own strange way, in that there's no, there's no, uh, there's no judgment made about that. You're not judging people, you're saying, well, well, we'll do it this way, then we don't have to make any judgments, we don't have to compete. And we all like to, to be polite and help each other, and there's various responsibilities that we accept. And then as an individual, say I as an individual am part of the of the Sangha. So when they they want someone to to they go and give a talk and then they, they invite somebody from the Sangha and then the Sangha say, Okay, you go. And then or if I want to go somewhere I ask. So that that means that I've always got a a refuge place from any ideas that, you know, I'm the one and only, or the best, or the worst, or the same. Or what I need, what I don't need. I always got a reference point to, to reflect off of. And I always know that people really are looking out for my well-being. The, the response is very rich and caring. But it's not just emotional or self-indulgent. It's knowing what is right and trying to encourage me to do what's right. You know, these are just uh, just um, reflections, really, on, on different ways of looking at, at how it's possible to relate to others and to relate to oneself, because finally it all comes down to the same. If there's that in you which respects yourself, 
you know that that's not a, that's not a, a blindness to your shortcomings, is it? It puts you in touch with the, the, your intention, and it gives you a place to work from. Feeling, yes, I can do. I can cultivate this way. I can try because I know what my intention is. And then when one sees this in others, you find that the world becomes a very helpful place, a place where you're enriched. This is, uh, means that the, our own, the individual qualities that we have and the uniqueness are not, are no longer, they're not, you're not denying them, but they're actually become very helpful. You can see them as that which needs to be reflected off of and, and looked at and, and brought up and polished. Just in, in simply like speech. Way we act. Most of us think that our lives are insignificant everyday events, and then, you know, occasionally something very important happens. We, maybe we, 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 we leave, or somebody dies, or we get sick, or we have a romance, or we change house, or we have a baby, or something. These significant events in most of the day is just a automatic, isn't it? And the people around you become ciphers, automatic, that you take for granted. Taking it one moment at a time, in mindfulness in, in what you're doing. So that you, you look at your attitudes just around working, getting things done, how you relate to people. In this, in the same way, and then it all becomes skillful practice. In living in our communities, we we actually get it down to um, just knowing how to to enter other people's presence in a way where you're not just suddenly barging into or slamming into people. There's a kind of sensitivity about about the way that uh, in monasteries people kind of move around each other, learn how to to address each other, give each other time and space, find out places that, that are right to to talk. And it's a whole it's a whole art form just around operating these human forms. There's enough there just in operating human body and mind for enlightenment, for insight. Not doing anything special or avoiding anything. 
but just the average ordinary daily events and how we worry about them, plan about them, think about them the kind of notions of the grudges we can carry around about other people creating our minds and always this letting go of it where the self is, where we're holding on now if we all learn to do this, you, the result is, is incredibly instructive and you re- really realise what human beings could do as a, as a group, as a community So I offer this for your reflection tonight.